This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by Dr. Judith Nelson. She's the author of today's article for discussion, The Voice of Surrogate Decision Makers, Family Responses to Prognostic Information in Chronic Critical Illness. Dr. Nelson is an attending physician on the Critical Care Service, as well as the Chief of the Palliative Medicine Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Thank you so much for joining us today, Judy. I'm gonna start off by just asking to describe a little bit what what the study was that's described in the article. Because I think while we all are familiar with qualitative research, we don't read as much qualitative research and it might be nice to just have you describe what you did, what your group did, and then I'll ask you some more questions about it. Thank you so much, Dr. Critic. Um, this is a study that was done uh, in conjunction with a larger randomized uh, clinical trial of a communication intervention uh, for the families of patients with chronic critical illness. And the heart of that intervention um, was a sequence of meetings uh, led by a palliative care physician and nurse practitioner uh, with the families uh, at two time points um, during uh, the illness. And those meetings uh, were recorded, audio recorded, in real time. And so those recordings um, were then available for review. Uh, the initial plan had been uh, to use the recordings to uh, confirm fidelity to the protocol, but we then expanded the recording effort uh, to provide more information about the content of those meetings um, to allow us to explore a variety of questions. I thought it was really interesting actually to start to see the actual commentary of families and then the themes that you pulled out with your qualitative analysis. Um, before we dive into that too much, I wanted to ask you a question that I had when I read your first paper or the other paper with this group that was published in JAMA in 2016. And I'm curious about your thoughts on this. So as you said, it was these meetings were led by the palliative care attending or nurse practitioner. The medical team was invited, and it seemed like very rarely they joined you for those meetings. Um, two, th two questions. One is, why do you think they didn't join as often, and then or that often? And then secondly, why did you guys decide to design it that it wasn't a collaborative meeting to start with? Right. So um, I'm going to answer the second question first. Okay. And the issue that we faced was trying to conduct a randomized controlled trial um, within intensive care units where um, there was a potential for tremendous uh, quote-unquote contamination. So the concern was that if the same uh, staff who were conducting the intervention meetings were also conducting the control meetings, meetings with the uh, families in uh, the control group, that it would be very difficult to maintain um, the, uh, the line between 
the intervention and control groups. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did want to be conducting the study within the same intensive care units rather than uh, randomizing at the institutional level. So the decision was made after um, not just a lot of discussion, but actually a lot of pilot observation um, of what the actual practice was when uh, consultants from palliative care came to the intensive care unit. And in the pilot observation period, it became clear that it was very frequent that the intensive care clinicians did not attend those meetings. And I think that happened, you know, for a variety of reasons. Intensive care clinicians are busy. They're confident that um, palliative care clinicians are good communicators, which was a confidence level that we also had, which is, you know, was a main reason actually for choosing them as skilled communicators for this situation. Um, but there was really no difference between the practice that we observed in our pilot observation and the actual attendance by the intensivists during the trial. Um, in fact, I would say that communication with the intensive care group was probably heightened by the trial um, with respect to those patients because it was a very structured process that required that the intensive care attending speak with the uh, team that was conducting the meeting before the meeting occurred mm -hmm to review a lot of data with them and the intensive care uh, clinicians' thoughts and impressions, and then to meet with them afterwards um, to give feedback about the meeting. So you were kind of doing a get everyone gets on the same page huddle before the meetings so that you and the intensive care team were on the same page, is that right? Correct, and so that, that huddle was really um, quite structured. And I have to say, you know, with a little bit of, of you know, uh, embarrassment that as an intensivist myself, um, there were times, not during this trial, but there are times when as an intensivist, I might not actually be present at certain meetings that were led by a palliative care consultant. That's certainly not always the case, but I think this actually does reflect um, common practice, at least in the institutions where we did pilot observation. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true where I work too, though I I would like to think that it's more than 15% of the time that we're doing it collaboratively. And I, I'm curious about your thoughts, just this is going a little tangential, but that's what's interesting about these conversations is, do you think that the best practice is to do them separately with a pre-huddle? Is it is the best practice to do it together? Is there no best practice? Do you have an opinion on that? I think the best practice is probably to do it together. Um, I think, you know, from a family's point of view and a patient's point of view, um, gathering everybody involved in their care um, is always ideal. It may not be the most practical, um, but I think it is ideal. And I also think that to the extent that palliative care clinicians are excellent communicators, there's also a role modeling and learning process that goes on when everybody's together. So I think from everyone's point of view, the ideal situation is that everyone is there if a consultant is involved. It just may not always be practical. Completely agree. I agree that it's often not practical, but I, I tend to agree with you that I think that's the best practice, and I completely agree that it's a great modeling experience. We love to debrief after our collaborative meetings, and I think often the palliative care attending or fellow or nurse practitioner gives the critical care team some input on their communication style as well, and I think it's been particularly helpful.
Anyway, I, I was mostly curious about that because I've been curious about that since I read the first study and I wanted to understand your your thoughts on the topic because I wondered when I read the other study if the fact that there were other meetings going on with the ICU team somehow affected the perceptions of the separate palliative care-led meetings. I don't know if that's the case or not. So I, I was... It's, you know, it's hard to say. We did look at uh, some aspects to try to get a handle on that question. One was whether the frequency of meetings between of ICU meetings, mm -hmm. which were allowed to continue freely during this time, was different than the number of meetings in the control group. And in fact, they were not significantly different. It was around two after randomization in both groups. Um, we did not record the intensive care unit meetings. Um, so we don't know the, you know, the content of those, but the same people who were conducting the ICU meetings in the intervention group were the people who were conducting it over the time period of the study in the control group. I mean, again, I think it's always best if everyone is together for the various meetings, um, but I think at least that the frequency wasn't different. Okay. And, um, you know, with respect to the content, the one, you know, real-time window we have is on the audio recordings of the palliative care clinicians. Which, let's dive into those, because that's what this paper is about, and I thought it was really interesting. You came up with six different, I guess what I'd say, themes that you coded out of the, the transcripts of these interviews, uh, or these meetings, and um, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to start by talking about one theme that was the deflection-rejection theme um, and ask for your thoughts on what do you think it means that I think I, I think it was about 58% of families rejected or deflected the messaging of unfavorable outcomes that that theme emerged in in your analysis and I, I'm curious your interpretation of that a little bit and your thoughts on that so I think it's an excellent question um, I think that families and patients too have an ambivalent relationship with prognostic information. And in fact, as we um, observed in this paper, it was not simply that one person, um, you know, was very receptive to prognostic information, whereas another person um, was unreceptive to that information. We saw often that people had both reactions um, within even a single meeting or across multiple meetings. And I think that um, what this really speaks to is the emotional subtext of these conversations and how important that is for us as clinicians to recognize because I think that um, the level of emotion on the part of someone listening to information has a very, very strong influence on their ability to absorb um, and integrate that information as part of a decision-making process. And so um, I think that as is the case with patients, there is kind of a pendulum and there are times when people are able to tolerate information that may feel distressing and there are other times when the distress level is just so high and that or the coping needs demand that the information not be discussed. And I think it's a very important for us to recognize that pattern. I think I, I want to build on that because I think you you described it in your paper a little bit, but 
I think your practice was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was to ask permission to provide prognostic information before providing it. Is that right? Yes, and I think um, that's a very important first step for all of us for two reasons. One is you really want the answer to that question because people, at least initially, have a view about how they feel about it. But also, I think you want to give the courtesy of asking, of giving someone a little bit of control over the flow of the meeting and to set it up as an interaction right from the very beginning, rather than as, you know, simply in a one-sided delivery of information. I think that little exchange at the beginning already begins to engage the person on the other end in a mutual conversation. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's very patient and in this case, family-centered to, to ask that permission. I don't you probably do that all the time. I don't know that we as intensivists do that all the time. My senses probably don't. I feel like I've read that the majority of ICU physicians don't actually think that they need to ask permission before providing prognosis, but it's, an I think, an important aspect of what you did in these meetings. And it seemed like most of the time people were open to you providing the prognosis, uh, prognostic picture, um, as opposed to always saying no to that. I would say that um, probably the majority of people are receptive to information. Um, some people actually, you know, proactively ask for information. It's also true that some of those same people who ask for information, when they are hearing it, find it to be very distressing and then don't really want to continue the conversation along those lines. And I think we have to be sensitive to that too. Um, so, and conversely, there are folks who will begin by saying that they're not interested in hearing information, but when they feel more comfortable in the conversation and more trusting and they feel supported, that they become more able to listen to information, even if it's distressing, because they recognize that it may be helpful to them in terms of helping them plan or informing their decisions. But I think if somebody is bold enough and clear enough to say that they don't want information, that's something that we have to respect. Um, and then we have to try to help them feel trusting enough and feel comfortable and supported enough so that at a future time they might be able to hear the information more clearly. And, and I think just to highlight with the last part of what you said, it doesn't mean that you don't ask again at another meeting because it could be different and, and that's what you actually found was that people's receptiveness varied from meeting to meeting. That's exactly right. I want to shift gears a little bit from the kind of providing prognostic information because I, I actually thought it was really interesting kind of that evolution. I thought one of the themes you also described were the, the family members described the characteristics of the patient and certainly I find that that's a huge part of what I like to hear when I'm meeting with families in these settings. But my guess is that some of the strategies that you as a palliative care uh, physician brought to the table enabled the families to do that more. So I'm curious about how you invited families into to telling more about the patient. What was your strategy? What were your group's strategies on, on doing that? Because I don't necessarily think that that happens in every family meeting, and clearly that was part of the process that you used. Yes, I think that's right, and I think as, as, as the transcripts were reviewed um, for this analysis, we saw that um, the clinicians who were conducting these meetings 
did ask um, about uh, the, the family member's view of the patient, both as a person and as uh, someone with a set of values and goals that were relevant to this decision. And I think those questions did lead to some of these discussions and this characterization of the patient. Um, and I also think that the supportiveness of the conversation allowed people to think about a relationship that was very important to them and to begin to um, consider what that relationship meant at a point when uh, the person's health and possibly even life um, was really threatened. And that process um, is an important part of the family support as well as um, investigating the goals and values of the patient, which then are the touchstone for the decision making. I, I'm, I know this wasn't what you studied, but I'm curious if you know, how much of the time on average was spent listening by your team versus talking? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a very interesting question because um, other folks have actually um, counted that. And it is pretty clear that most of the time um, in an intensive care unit meeting, uh, at least the ones that were um, in the sample that uh, Dr. Curtis at University of Washington looked at, um, the clinicians are doing the talking. Um, we haven't yet actually tried to quantify that here. I could just tell you, you know, from the impression of reading it, that there was a great deal of family speech. And I think that, um, and a lot of open-ended questioning um, by the clinicians. So I think um, that if I had to give my uh, gestalt impression of this, that uh, well over half the time was spent um, with family talking and clinicians listening. I do also want to emphasize that, you know, these meetings were not solely about the delivery of prognostic information. Um, they were about a mutual exchange of information about the patient and about the context. And so, um, you know, by definition, that information was a two-way street and there was much more coming from the family side, um, which is appropriate. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I would argue that even if you're an intensivist leading a family meeting that includes some discussion of prognosis in a chronically critically ill patient, it should still be a two-way street and you should still be trying to learn um, about the patient and their family and their support system and all the things that I think you characterized from these conversations. So, I, I agree with you, and I and I think that many intensivists do that, and um, and I I would emphasize that it is doable without spending three hours in a meeting. Everybody's busy, but I think the right questions and good listening will elicit the information in a time frame that is practical um, within an intensive care practice. I think that's a great point because I think people do worry about that. And I would completely echo what you said, which is I think a lot of intensivists do do exactly that. It would be nice from this for you, for us to think about what are the learnings for intensivists across the board? So what do you think are the take homes and are there things from your study that you think should be ones that affect our clinical practice moving forward? So I think um, a first point is that we want to be able to go into these meetings with 
um, a with a, a base of knowledge and a skill set that will allow us to respond in a way that is supportive and that will elicit information that will help with the decision making. And those skills and that body of knowledge are just as important as the other skills and knowledge that we know we have to have as intensivists. And so if we can look at a study like this and get some information about the kinds of family behavior and, and conversation that we can expect in a meeting, then we walk into those meetings prepared with an idea of what themes are more likely to arise than not in a conversation like this. And we can have in our heads some ideas about how one would respond when this type of theme, and we can listen and observe for these themes and have in our skill set um, responses that will be supportive and useful in that framework. So I think that's the first lesson, is that there is information to know about how families respond in these meetings that will help us improve their quality and their outcomes. And we should know that information, both from our own clinical experience and from the research that we do. So that's the mindset to come into the meeting and the kind of being prepared for the, the spectrum of, of emotions and discussion topics that we expect to come up. Correct. And and as we have said, you know, they not every, you know, these people are all individuals, but what we see is that in almost all of these meetings, most people showed multiple themes, some of which were um, even internally inconsistent. And that means that a good clinician who is conducting a meeting like this and interacting with a family needs to be able to see the changes and anticipate them and shift gears as appropriate in response to that. And that takes skill and practice um, and is not at all a trivial aspect of our job as intensivists. <laughs> I, I agree. I actually think it also needs feedback and I think that's the one thing that's we're missing a lot of the time is it would be great to like, like I said, debrief afterwards and get people's insights. But yes, I completely hear you. So I think that's, that's one thing. I think that the second most important message of this is that there is very intense emotion for these families in this situation. Um, although they may not want to discuss the prognosis at some level, possibly not conscious, they are quite aware that this is a very grave situation and they are very, very upset whether they look it or not, they're upset, they're very distressed, and they're exhausted from a prolonged illness. And those emotions are behind or expressed in these themes. And if we simply continue talking and delivering information without attending to those emotions, we will actually not be able to communicate what it is that we have to say. And so we need to recognize these things um, in order to communicate what it is that we want to say. Um, because it can't be heard unless we attend to those emotions and allow some of these responses to manifest themselves and allow the patient, the families, to um, to settle down emotionally a little bit. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I think some of the quotes that you included in the paper really demonstrate that emotion, which I think we've all felt, but maybe we don't all acknowledge in the same way. Um, and I think that's part of what you drew out. I also think that, you know, I think we've all experienced this clinically, that there are many situations in which uh, people will deal with this stress by um, 
by talking about miracles or seeing special qualities in their loved one that they think will help them to um, overcome strong odds. And I would say two things about that. Number one, it's not helpful to try to talk, people's out, talk people out of miracles. Most people who are talking about miracles know that something is scientifically very unlikely to occur. That's why they're reaching for a miracle. And so I think allowing people to believe in a miracle and joining their hope while asking them to join with you in planning for the future is a more helpful strategy than trying to counteract the idea of miracles. I think the other thing is that we, as we approach prognosis, we need to be quite humble about our own uncertainties. And although chronic critical illness remains one of the most refractory critical illnesses in terms of outcome, I think it's still fair for us to leave open these uncertain possibilities. Because if we make predictions that don't come true, we have completely lost the trust of those families uh, for, forever after. And so I think recognizing and acknowledging the uncertainty and its impact on us and on these families and allowing them to use the strategies that they need to uh, shore themselves up in the face of this crisis are two very important strategies um, that are helpful in these situations. Yeah, I think those are great additional kind of best practices. And I do think that we often fall into that pitfall of trying to convince people that a miracle is not going to happen. And I would argue that that's never a successful strategy, as you pointed out. So I, I think your, your take homes for the listener are great. And I think they're ones that we can all kind of ponder before going into that next challenging family meeting. I think um, the more rapport you build with the family, the easier it is to have those conversations. And perhaps the other thing that happened in this is this, you met with folks multiple times and that that rapport developed and that those emotions evolved during those times and, and think that there's some value in that as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that you're absolutely right to focus on that process of time and uh, to build trust and, um, you know, a full palliative care consultation over a longer period of time, uh, you know, could have been more successful than this intervention, which consisted of a sequence of meetings. I think above all, the intensivist's own role in building that trust and preparing families for what may come um, is the most indispensable piece of good communication. Yeah, I would agree. So my last question for you is, where do you go next with this investigation? Where, What is your research group's next series of questions and, and how do you build upon what you've already learned here? So I think there are a variety, there's tremendous richness um, in both the qualitative and the quali quantitative uh, data that we have from this study. I think uh, one of the areas that we've been quite focused on um, as a sequel to this qualitative paper is how the families actually view their role as surrogate decision makers and how do they characterize and understand what that role actually entails. Um, what is surrogacy to them? Who are they speaking for? Um, and 
whose interests are they protecting and what interests are they protecting? Um, you know, one of the things that drove this study in the first place was this question about um, how do the families balance their own emotions and their own needs and their own thoughts and goals with what they perceive to be the patient's values, goals, and preferences. I think that's one area we're very interested in. Um, I think um, the very issue you raised about, you know, in this paper we looked a lot at what the families were saying. I think another perspective on these audio recordings is what were the clinicians saying, and you asked some questions about this, that elicited those responses. So I think one can flip this and look at the approach of people who are skillful in communication and see what strategies they were using and focus more specifically on that. Yeah, I would love to see that. I think that would be great for, for our community. And then I think, you know, there are many questions still about the findings of the larger trial and some questions about, you know, can we identify um, what factors are predictive of, of things like post-traumatic stress disorder in these families at longer-term follow-up so that we can identify, you know, actionable, targetable um, characteristics um, that we may be able to improve. Um, I think the question of when one makes an intervention like this is also crucial, as, as you and I were just saying. Um, there is a process of trust that builds up, and it may not be that possible at this stage of an illness to really make a dent, um, just like we're finding out in critical illness itself, that it's the preventive strategies that are probably most important in terms of the long-term outcomes, rather than trying to mitigate damage after it's already occurred. So I think these are some of a number of areas that we could look into. I think it's great. I think this is an area, as I recently have been interviewing fellowship applicants for training, that more and more people who go into critical care are really engaged with this component of our job and the part where we can really make a difference with patients and families around issues of chronic critical illness and end of life. And so the fact that there's ongoing research, both quantitative and qualitative, that helps to inform how we do that better seems like a, a great growing area of investigation. So I, I think it, it was a pleasure to read the paper, but it's also great to talk about it and hear where you're going to go in the future. I'm going to wrap up unless there's anything else you wanted to tell the listener about this that I haven't asked you. No, I would just say, uh, Dr. Critic, that I think this issue about how people um, respond to prognostic information is a big challenge for all of us going forward because we want people to have information and we don't want them to make decisions that are uninformed. And at the same time, we know that delivering a prognosis that may be unfavorable is distressing to people. And learning and constructing from these data and more studies going forward, how we can do that, how we can strike the right balance between giving people information that's helpful to them while supporting them and allowing them to hope for a good outcome 
is, is, is an area that really requires um, a lot of attention to support skillful clinicians. Um, but I think if, as you say, you know, the current generation and the future generation are prioritizing this as an area of importance, that we're going to get that knowledge and we're going to develop those skills um, even beyond where we are today, which is a good place already. I think that I, I hear you, and I like ending on that hopeful note for the future. Uh, it was a pleasure having you uh, on this podcast, and I really appreciate the time and the insights. For the listeners, if you'd like to read the article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day.